0: The word of the Lord. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Hopefully you already have your Bibles open to the text that was just read. And as Corey has already mentioned, we will be deviating a little from our normal pattern of walking through a book of the Bible chapter by chapter each week. Just for the next two weeks, we plan to cover two important topics, as he mentioned, the topics of work and rest. So we'll be this morning and I assume next week in multiple passages, The passage that was just read. We will eventually get to some of the details, but as we think this morning about the topic of work from scripture, I want us to see that this is not just a minor issue. A short time ago, we spent multiple weeks on this topic in adult core training, but It's one of those that we may think is on the periphery, but when you stop and actually even count the hours in a week, we see that this is not a minor issue for disciples of Christ. Consider this, if you work 40 hours a week, and I realize for some of you, you wish it were just 40, but if you work 40 hours a week, and I'm talking about your main job, your vocation. And you sleep seven hours a night, which, again, I realize for some of you say, I wish I could sleep seven hours a night, particularly for maybe moms with young kids. That means you spend over a third of your waking hours at work. Okay? A third of your waking hours. And I, again, I realize for some of you, that percentage would be much higher But regardless of the percentage, the point I want us to see is our work is a significant part of our Christian discipleship. If we claim Jesus as our Lord and King, it doesn't make sense and it would be negligent to disconnect a third of our waking hours from his word. Right. He's not only Lord on Sunday mornings when we gather or on a midweek or in your personal Bible study, he is Lord over your entire life. This morning, I want us to think about what God's word has to say about our work, and it's impossible in just one sermon to say everything, so a lot will be left unsaid, but I hope this will be a good starting point for us when it comes to what it means for disciples of Christ to glorify God in their work. Okay, so in the passage that David just read, Colossians 3, beginning in verse 22, the Apostle Paul is speaking specifically to bond servants here. Okay, this would be similar in many ways to what we might think of today as a slave. Some translations even use the term slave. Just prior to this, the Apostle Paul was addressing wives, husbands, children, and fathers. He's giving them excuse <clears> me, <throat> instructions about how God's grace in the gospel should affect their relationships and their responsibilities. And I want to use Paul's instructions here to bond servants as a kind of pattern for the way we should think about our work today. Okay, we'll circle back to some of the specifics of this text, but for now, just a quick word here so we're not distracted maybe by a misunderstanding. Okay, we shouldn't get the impression here that Paul's instructions to bond servants means that he approved of the institution of slavery as it was practiced in the Roman world. Okay, slavery has been practiced in all kinds of ways, some more cruel and inhumane than others, But it was not a part of God's original design. It's a result of sin and the fall. And actually, Corey addressed this in a sermon on 1 Timothy 6 a long time ago. But you can probably still go and look that up on the website for more questions about what does the Bible say about this topic of slavery But as Paul writes to these Christians in the church at Colossae, we need to understand he's writing to a church that has little or no ability to change anything in terms of politically or legally in the culture that they were a part of. There's no midterm elections where you can uh, voice your vote and change the institution. He's writing to people. Specifically here, bond servants, telling them in the position they find themselves, how can they best honor the Lord? Okay, the way that they work, the way that we work, is a discipleship issue. Okay, I realize for us, we're in a different situation, right? We are not bond servants to masters in our culture, right? Gratefully. But as employers to employees, We have a a good pattern here to follow based on Paul's words, okay? So again, not the exact same situation, but so much of what Paul says here gives us help in this area of our work. But before we dig in specifically here, I want us to put our work in the bigger picture of what God is doing in Scripture, in the grand narrative of redemption, Unless we see our work in light of that, we're going to miss it or distort it in some way. Okay, so if we go back to the opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and think about our work in light of God's original design in creation, we hear the following words in Genesis 128 as He makes man and woman in His image and then He gives them the following mandate. Be fruitful and multiply And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. So immediately in Genesis 1. God gives man and woman a task. Subdue the earth. Have dominion over it. Adam and Eve were to be stewards over all that God had made. Ruling on his behalf. Then in the next chapter. God gets more specific. He fleshes this out more. Genesis 2.15, he tells Adam in the Garden of Eden, he says, to work it and keep it. Okay, Like a priest, Adam was to cultivate the garden. So it was a place for God's fellowship and enjoyment of God. God gives Adam Eve as a helper in this task. Together, they have complementary roles of filling And subduing the earth. Okay, There's so much more to say about this. Genesis 1 isn't only about our work. But it's certainly not about less than our work. I think it's significant though for us to notice that God's mandate to work and keep the garden comes before sin enters the world. We're not yet to sin entering the world in Genesis 3. And yet God has given a mandate to work. That means that work is not a result of the fall. It's not a punishment for bad behavior. Sometimes we use that for people, right? I'm not saying you're a bad parent if you do that, but we don't ever want to give the impression that work in and of itself is a bad thing or something to be ignored or um, to uh, to turn away from work reflects something of God's own character A scripture speaks of God working, right? He he creates the world in six days and then he rests. Corey will talk more about that next week. Of course, God's work and rest are very different from ours. God doesn't rest because he's tired, right? He's infinite in power. He rests because his work is complete. But still, in some small way, our work reflects something of his work as those made in his image. And this is true of any kind of work. We don't only glorify God in religious vocations. Right? Sometimes Christians can fall into the trap of thinking, well, maybe pastors or missionaries or people who work in some kind of ministry are doing the real work, but I'm just slogging it out in a secular job that really doesn't matter in the long run. But This is not how God's Word views work. All work is work unto the Lord. Secretaries, salesmen, CEOs, attorneys, farmers, factory workers, stay-at-home moms, IT people, nurses, doctors, teachers, engineers, waiters and waitresses, every other job, you name it, everything we do is to be done unto the Lord. And it's not a punishment. It is God's gift to us to help us flourish And enjoy his presence and steward his creation. Okay, that's an all too brief summary of God's original design for work. But if you're familiar with scripture and I've already hinted at it, you know Genesis 1 and 2 is not the whole story when it comes to our work. Something significant happens in Genesis 3 that changes everything, including our work. So next, let's consider work in light of sin and the fall. Yeah, that was work in light of God's original design. This is work in light of sin and the fall. Despite God's goodness and everything He had provided, Adam chooses to rebel by eating from the one tree that God had forbidden. And as a result, sin and death enters the world and ruins everything, including our work. God says this in Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. Remember, Adam was to work the ground. Well, the very work God had given him now is cursed. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So now... As a result of Adam's disobedience, instead of work being fulfilling in a way of enjoying God's presence and spreading his glory, now Adam's work will be difficult and often futile. You know, we've all experienced this. Even if you're at a job now that you really like, you know that work can be difficult. At times, your best efforts and best intentions can come to nothing. Nothing. You know, there's a well-known statement and I tried to track it down who this actually originated with and it's everywhere from Mark Twain to Steve Jobs and to Confucius. So I'm not sure who said it, but some form of this is passing around. It says, find something you love to do and you'll never have to work a day in your life. Have you heard something like that? I mean, that's great for a commencement speech, right? But anyone who's worked for more than a day or a week or a couple weeks knows this actually doesn't fit with our experience, does it? That work in a fallen world can be frustrating and even painful. Yes, it helps to enjoy what we do, but even in a job we enjoy, we don't experience continual satisfaction in a world that's marked by sin. There's sin in us, there's sin in others. Right? There's sin in everything we do. Right? Thankfully, though, sin doesn't have the last word when it comes to our work. Okay, so that would be sin, uh, excuse me, work in light of sin in the fall. Let's think about now work in light of Christ's redemption. Okay, Jesus came to bear the curse of sin on our behalf, on behalf of sinners, so that we could be reconciled to God. And so that one day all of creation would be set right. However, the fact that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross and then rose again, doesn't mean that all of a sudden our work becomes easy or that it never seems futile. Yes, Christ has overcome the penalty of our sin. He's freed us from the need to merit God's favor with our work. But Scripture says creation is still waiting the day when sin and death will be no more. That's true in our lives. God isn't finally done with us in sanctification. And it's true of creation in general. That means as a Christian living in a fallen world, Christ's coming may not change what you do for a living. But it should change how you do it. How you work. Why you work. Okay, here's what I mean. When you put your trust in Christ for salvation, you should begin to recognize that you're no longer working simply for an earthly employer. Okay, that doesn't mean you need to walk out of here on Monday morning and say your pastor said you no longer have to obey your supervisor or your boss, okay? That's not a good application of this. Right? We still have earthly masters, earthly bosses, supervisors, people over us at work. We should work hard for them. We should respect them. In fact, out of all people, Christians should be the best at living under authority. Right? But this again is where we circle back to our text beginning in verse 22 of Colossians 3. We think about working in a new way and ultimately for someone new. Paul says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, don't just serve well and work hard when people are watching. He says, do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord out of reverence for the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. He says, you work hard and do it sincerely from the heart, not because your earthly master or your boss is such a swell guy. You do it because you're serving the Lord. That's true for bond servants in Paul's day, who most likely had much more difficult masters than we have bosses. But it's true for us in our work today, even the worst boss that we have Doesn't have final ownership over us. Notice in verse 25 here, if you're still in Colossians 3, he he gives them this assurance. He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. In other words, God will be their judge. You don't have to worry ultimately about the way that they treat you. You serve the Lord faithfully. He'll deal with them. And on the final day, he won't show any partiality. None of us will be showing our credentials to God to get a free pass. He says, you serve the Lord, let God deal with them. And hey, there's actually a word here, I think, too, for Christians who find themselves in positions of authority in the workplace. Whether you're a CEO or you're just over a few people, how are you stewarding that authority? Do you notice verse, chapter four, verse one that we read to? God has a word here for masters. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, there'll be a day where we give an account for the authority that we have over others. Okay, so whether you're the highest on the totem pole at work or the lowest, belonging to Christ, should change how and why you work and how you treat other people. Gratefully, there's, there's coming a day, and this really, <clears throat> excuse me, moves into the fourth section of this grand narrative. There's coming a day when instructions like this won't even be necessary. When creation is no longer under the curse of sin. So let's think finally about work in light of God's final restoration. Okay, work in our final restoration. Gratefully, work will not always be full of difficulties and frustrations. When Jesus returns and we are given new glorified bodies, free from sin, our work will be transformed. What will it look like? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly. I don't know what it's like to work in a glorified body in the new heavens and the new earth. But I know that we'll have greater capacity to know and enjoy God. Right? Work will be what it was always intended to be. A means of enjoying God and loving others. In some ways, our work will be inseparable from our rest. The frustrations and disappointments of your work today will be no more on that day. So we work today in light of that final day. Okay, so that's, that's work in the big picture here, okay? Just a brief overview, there's so much more to say, but we need to at least put our work in the big story of what God's doing in the world. So in the remainder of our time, I want us to look at two things here that apply to our work today. Two errors to avoid in our work, and then four exhortations for our work, okay? Two big errors to avoid, and then four exhortations for our work. And I'll begin with the two errors Okay, and I'm borrowing here from uh, Greg Gilbert and Sebastian Traeger. They have a really helpful book that I, I mentioned in our adult core training titled The Gospel at Work that I would highly recommend. It, it helps us to think through work from a biblical perspective and gives a lot of practical counsel here. So let's think about two errors to avoid in our work in light of what we've just seen, okay? The first error would be the idolatry of work. Okay? The idolatry of work. Yesterday I read a couple articles about the sportscaster Jimmy Johnson. Okay, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Not the race car driver. I'm talking about the former head coach of the Dallas Cowboys and before that the Miami Hurricanes. Okay, Johnson was a very successful coach winning championships both in the pros and in college. But come to find out his personal life was actually really a tragedy. He's one of the few coaches to openly admit that his job was number one and his family was number two. I mean, a lot of people live that way. It's not just coaches. But he openly admitted this. In fact, as soon as he became head coach of the Dallas Cowboys, he reportedly divorced his wife of 25 years. No longer saw the need for her and apparently thought maybe she would even get in the way of his success. So we chose football over his wife winning football games had become his God for most of us making an idol of our work won't look that bad it's often more subtle but it happens in a variety of ways an idol doesn't have to be a statue that you physically bow down to it can be anything in our lives that competes with God Okay, so you may wonder, what what does it look like then for my work to become an idol? Okay, let me give you just a few questions maybe to ask, okay? This is not exhaustive. You could add to this. But just a few questions maybe to help discern whether your work right now fits with how God designed it. Ask yourself this, do I define myself by my work? Okay, one of the most common things we do when we meet people, we ask, what do you do? It's not a not necessarily a bad question, right? It's not a bad conversation starter. Our work is important, makes sense, but we should at least be on guard that we have a tendency to measure ourselves and measure others based on their work. When we're successful, feel really good about ourselves. We don't have the success we want. We lose our job. Leads to despair, maybe even an identity crisis. So instead of glorifying God with our work, we define ourselves by our work. A okay, second question you could ask, do I look to my job for ultimate security and provision? Do I look to my job, my work for ultimate security and provision? Yes, God provides in large part through our jobs. Right? But there's a problem when we rely on our work to do what only God can do. Again, when things aren't going well, it just leads to anxiety and constant worry. Because we're not trusting the only one who can actually take care of us. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, don't worry about food and drink and clothing. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. He even takes care of the birds and the grass. Do you not think He'll take care of you? So do you look to God or do you look to your work for financial security? The third question to ask to see whether your work might be becoming an idol. Does work just consume your thoughts and affections? Even in non-working hours, do you find yourself unable to stop thinking about it? Unable to not check your email Instead of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, do you give all your time and energy to your work? You don't even necessarily have to love your job for this to be a temptation. A fourth question, does work encroach on other God given callings for you? Does work encroach on other God-given callings? And here's what I mean when I say callings. I'm talking about the most important relationships and responsibilities in life that God has given to us. Most especially your family and your church. Okay, so let's think about God's calling for you and for me in our families. Okay, I realize not each of these is going to hit everybody. But husbands, husbands. Is your commitment to your work preventing you from caring for your wife? Are you so preoccupied with work that you ignore her spiritual, physical, emotional, or even romantic needs? That's a sign that work is becoming an idol. It's replacing a more important God-given calling. Wives, is your commitment to your work, whether that's inside or outside the home, preventing you from loving and supporting your husband? If you find yourself really motivated for your job, but indifferent to your husband or your family, that's a sign that something is off. Right? To be fair, few of us have all the time we want right, to invest in a healthy marriage and to improve a healthy marriage and to give to our families. It's inevitable, right? We don't always get to set our work hours, so we could always do more, but we at least need to ask the question. this is more than just about logging hours. It's about where our deepest affections and commitments are. Dads, does your obsession with work prevent you from providing spiritual leadership to your family? Moms, does your passion for your work take the place of teaching your children God's word, providing them with a godly example? We could apply this to caretakers, to those who are not married in terms of their various relationships. Right? It's good that your job plays a significant role in your life. Right? Don't hear me undermine work. Okay? We talked about that. That's an important part of what God has given us to do. But we shouldn't pursue it at the expense of other responsibilities. Right? And that's just your calling to your family. Think about it. You're calling to your local church. Okay? When God saves us, He not only joins us to His Son, He joins us to the church, to Christ's body. Right? And this commitment largely plays out in the life of a local church, not just to the global church, but to this uh, particular body. Hey, this may seem shocking to some Christians today. I hope if you've been around this place for long, it's not shocking, but your commitment to your local church is more important than your commitment to your company or your boss. Hey, that that's kind of uh, radical in some uh, quarters. Uh, in some christian circles today but your commitment to god's people is more important than your work than your job or vocation i should say okay it doesn't mean you're required to serve in every way imaginable this is not a ploy for me to get next generation workers okay i'm not slipping that in here it's okay sometimes to say no okay but not yeah you know, <laughs> under the right conditions Right, It's okay to say no. Sometimes work just prevents us from doing everything we want to do. That's okay. It prevents me sometimes from doing what I want to do. Right? Again, this is not about number of hours logged in a week. But this is about where are your deepest commitments. Okay? If your commitment to your work trumps your commitment to your brothers and sisters in Christ, then there's an issue there possible that work there has overstepped its bounds right we need other christians to help us in this area okay okay these are just some of the ways that work can become an idol in our lives okay that's one error to avoid a second error to avoid in our approach to work we not only want to avoid the idolatry of work but we want to be careful about idleness in our work okay and i'm using the term idleness there very broadly here i'm borrowing it from gilbert and Traeger. And certainly the Bible has a lot to say about being idle. If you turn to the book of Proverbs, you'll read about sloth and the sluggard. You will read about the negative consequences that comes from the person who's lazy. Okay, so that's certainly a problem we need to uh, be aware of, particularly in a culture that is just addicted to entertainment. Right, But even more broadly than that, we can become idle when we disconnect our work from God's purposes. You don't have to turn there now, but in Second Thessalonians 3, the Apostle Paul warns the Christians there against idleness, in part, he says, because you're a burden on other people when you're idle and refuse to work. He's not talking about somebody who's unemployed but looking for work. These are people who are idle and for one reason, one reason or another refuse to work. So he says, don't do that. He said, "Do you remember when I was with you, I worked hard night and day. As an apostle, Paul could have made a pretty strong request to be supported. He had some pretty important work to do. But he said, I, I, I put that aside and I worked hard to leave you an example so you, I wouldn't be a burden on you. Okay, So just at a very basic level, idleness puts a burden on other people. When you refuse to work at all or work diligently, others have to pick up the slack for you. And in the body of Christ, we, we should want to lift burdens off each other, right? Not place burdens on each other. Right, so a couple questions here, just in this area of idleness, just so it doesn't stay uh, so abstract. Do you see work as something just to slog through to get a paycheck Or do you see it as a means to glorify God? You just sit and think all day if only five o'clock or six o'clock or seven o'clock would come. Or do you see it as a a way to glorify God? Another question. Are you motivated by what you can accomplish? Okay, sometimes this can actually be couched in really um, impressive terms. We can want to change the world. But are you motivated by what you can accomplish in the advancement of your career? Or do you see your work as a way to honor God and serve others? This this is a way in which uh, idleness actually disconnects our work from the Lord. So those are two errors we need to avoid. The idolatry of work and being idle in our work. You could probably add to that list, but in one way or another, it is easy for us to make too much of our work or too little of our work. It's in, in the remainder of our time, then, those are kind of the, the negatives here. I want us to think positively, so I want to leave you with four exhortations for your work, okay? Based on the big picture that we saw at the beginning and based on these two errors to avoid, I want to give you four exhortations for your work based, based on all that we've seen here, okay? Number one, see your work in light of the gospel, See your work in light of the gospel. Okay, so far this sermon has been heavy on warnings and instructions from scripture, but as Christians, we should never approach anything, including our work, apart from the truth of the gospel. Okay, the good news for you, if you belong to Christ, is that you have been freed from any and all fruitless attempts to gain God's favor by your work. And that includes your vocation. Christ has merited God's favor for you by his own obedience. He's died to take the penalty for all the ways that you have fallen short in your work. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is the first step. The the word for you isn't work harder. The word for you is to acknowledge your need of a Savior. That there's nothing you can do, no matter how hard you work, to make yourself right with him. It's Christ's finished work that saves us. Not our attempts to be faithful in work. If you've never put your trust in Christ, I or someone here would love to talk with you about that. The good news of the Gospel is that it frees us to offer our work to God as a way of saying thank you. It's not a way for you to climb the ladder at your company or to make up for your faults and sins. We work in full dependence on God's grace and His provision. One of the reasons for burnout and anxiety and our inability to rest, and I assume Corey will address this next week, is we think the world revolves around us. If I don't do it, the world is just going to fall apart. Here's a quick spoiler alert, though. Let me say this with all due respect to the hard workers in here. God doesn't need your work. He doesn't need my work. right? None of our efforts are meeting his needs. He has no needs. Our work doesn't exist to help him out. It exists to reflect his glory. And the good news is you work and I work if we belong to Christ, not for a stern taskmaster, but for a heavenly father who has reconciled you to himself through his son. That should change your perspective on how and why you work. That's what I mean by working in light of the gospel. If you leave here and think, David just said that I should work harder, you have missed it. That is not a Christian view of work. Yes, we're to work hard, but we work in light of the truth of the gospel. So that's that's the first exhortation. See your work in light of the gospel. Second, See your work in light of the church's overall mission. See your work in light of the church's overall mission. This isn't just for somebody who's on a paid staff. That's all of us. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Christ gives what we refer to as the Great Commission, a good summary of the church's mission. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I command you. Every member of this church, regardless of your vocation, has a part to play in that mission. That begins where we are, including our workplace. In His sovereign plan, God has put you and me around coworkers, customers, neighbors, and other people who need to hear the gospel. It's not an accident that you have the coworkers that you do that you know the people that you do, that you run into the customers that you do. I'm not suggesting all day long at your job that you're to be passing out gospel tracts or that if you have a Monday morning meeting that you slip in the gospel into a PowerPoint presentation. that's, That's not usually a good way to do it. In fact, you could be stealing time from your employer. He or she is paying you to do a certain job. Do it well. What I'm saying is be intentional about the relationships you have by virtue of working where you do and doing what you do. Who at your work could you pray for and plan to have a gospel conversation with? Just think of one person. Maybe you've known them for a long time, worked beside them for a long time. Maybe they know you go to church, but that's all they know. Right? Who do you know that you, though, could go deeper than that? To get beyond temporal details and talk about eternal matters. Maybe that happens over a break or lunch or outside of work hours. But however this plays out, let me encourage you not to compartmentalize your discipleship. Right? We don't check out of being disciples when we clock in on Monday morning. And right? also, even along with this exhortation, I want to encourage you to remember that the way that you work will either help Or harm your witness at work. If you're diligent. Compliant. If you're known as someone uh, who has integrity. Your witness is much more likely to get a hearing. Few people want to listen to the worker. Who's cutting corners. Being lazy. Or being dishonest. Or just complaining all the time. All they're going to do is look at you and say he or she is living for the exact same things that the rest of us are. To borrow Paul's language from Titus, and we saw this in our midweek, let your let your the way that you work adorn your witness. Right, let it make your witness that much more compelling because of how you work. Okay, one, one final thing here on this exhortation, because this, this is probably not in the forefront of our minds, but your work actually allows you to contribute financially to this church's efforts to make disciples here and around the world. That's another way your work actually contributes to the church's mission. Whether it's missions partners overseas, local missions partners, ministries to the next generation. Your weekly giving is one of the ways that makes this possible. Do you ever give thanks to God that you're actually able to do that? Your job allows you to make eternal investments. Even things like facilities or salaries. These are all to the end that the gospel might be spread and disciples might be matured. Hey, that's another great motivation to work and to work hard. Regardless of whether it's your dream job. Right? You're working for eternal gain. Okay, third exhortation. See your work in light of others' needs. See your work in light of others' needs. When is the last time you thank God that your job allowed you to serve a neighbor? We can typically think of all the things we don't like about our jobs, all the things we would like to change. When is the last time that you saw your job as a means of meeting the needs of others? This happens in a a wide variety of ways. The most basic level, it allows us to provide for our families. First Timothy 5.8, the Christian who doesn't provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever, Paul tells us. He says even pagans know better than that. Your work allows you to provide for others. Beyond that, it allows us to meet the physical needs of church members, friends, neighbors, people in our community who lack basic necessities. Your work, however irritating or frustrating it may be at times, allows you to meet needs. Sometimes that's through the church. Sometimes it's just a need that you see and you're able to meet. And how easy it is for us to be ungrateful because we're only thinking about ourselves in our work. Work for the Christian is never just about you. First and foremost, it's for God, but then he uses you to meet the needs of others. Ephesians 4.28, I love this. Paul, Paul talks about what it means to put away sin and to live in accord with the gospel. He says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. And here's why he needs to do that so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's why the thief needs to work. Not just so that he doesn't steal, so he can meet needs. Do you think about your work like that? I need to work because I want to be able to meet the needs of other people. There should be, at least, an others focus to our jobs. This doesn't only apply to meeting a basic need, either like food or shelter. This also applies at a more general level. Whatever service you provide others in your work. As long as your work, whatever you do, isn't inherently immoral or as long as you're not trying to take advantage of other people, it's likely that your work is actually serving the good of your neighbor. A few examples, a policeman provides protection and safety. A nurse provides physical and emotional care to people, sometimes when they're at their lowest point. An insurance salesman can prevent an individual or a business from a devastating loss. A custodian enables people to use a facility that is clean and that functions properly. A student in school prepares diligently to serve others in a future vocation, even if they don't know what it is right now. Moms meet a thousand unseen practical needs throughout the week that allow the entire family to flourish. Okay, those are all ways of serving others with our work. Right? None of us would function well in life without other people who are trained in a wide variety of ways. Tim Keller actually points out how difficult life would be if we didn't rely on the work of others. If you don't believe me, see if you have the time or the expertise to build a microwave or a refrigerator the next time you need one. Everything we do is ultimately, or it should be, to serve others. Even if it's not a basic need. Our jobs don't just help us flourish, they help others. All right, so that's the third exhortation. See your work in light of the gospel. See your work in light of the church's mission. See your work in light of others' needs. Now fourth and finally, see your work in light of your eternal reward. See your work in light of your eternal reward. Earlier, we looked at Paul's instructions here to bond servants where he tells them to obey their earthly masters with sincerity of heart. And he says, do it out of fear of the Lord, reverence for the Lord. But there's one motivation earlier that I didn't mention. If you look at verses 23 and 24, Paul says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And in the next phrase, he says, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. In other words, Paul reminds them on the last day, the reward for your work and my work will not come from a boss or an earthly master. The reward, and he's talking here about your heavenly reward, will come from the Lord himself. So we need to remember this in our work. You and I will not stand Before anybody right now that's in our company or who may be in a, who may be over us in the future, we will not stand before them on the last day. We will stand before the Lord and what will matter is not our position, our salary, or our accomplishments. What will matter on that day is if we were faithful to the Lord in our work. Your work may be frustrating now. It may go unnoticed. Right, Maybe you love it. That's a great thing. But remember, you're not ultimately looking for an earthly reward. You're looking for a heavenly reward for the day when you will dwell with God forever and rest in Him. Right? And this is secured not ultimately by your faithfulness, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. So church, let's work diligently today in light of that final day. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the the privilege that is ours to serve You with our work. Not because You need it. Not to make up for our shortcomings or sins, but as a way to give You thanks. And as a way to give others a glimpse of Your character. We confess our need for Your grace to sustain us in a world that is still marked by sin and futility. Remind us, from Your Word that we are ultimately serving Christ and that His finished work on the cross is what secures our final reward. We look forward to the day when our work will be inseparable from our rest. When our efforts will be the enjoyment of Your presence. Until that day, let us be found faithful by Your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.